Some call me Steve, Dad, Husband or Friend. Others might call me Boss, Coach or Mentor. Today you can call me the Leadership Hacker. Thanks for listening in, I really appreciate it. My job as the Leadership Hacker is to hack into the minds, experiences, habits and learning of great leaders, C-suite executives, authors and development experts so that I can assist you developing your understanding and awareness of leadership. I'm Steve Rush and I'm your host today. I'm the author of Leadership Cake. I'm a transformation consultant and leadership coach and can't wait to start sharing all things leadership with you. Our special guest on today's show is Dan Berger. He's an economist, leadership expert and president and CEO of NAFCU, the National Association of Federally Insured Credit Unions. But before we get a chance to speak with Dan, it's the Leadership Packing News. Most of us would agree that empathy is an essential ingredient in leadership. In my book, Leadership Cake, empathy is in fact the E in cake. And a lack of this essential ingredient became a talking point on the 9th of February when it emerged that an article in the Garden newspaper called out that KPMG boss and chairman Bill Michael had urged staff to stop moaning about the effects of COVID-19 and get on with their jobs. In a staff video called the previous day, recordings of which sued made their way online, Bill Michael had also gnashed his teeth at employers saying they were playing the victim card with regards to current working conditions and also rallied against his own firm's inclusion efforts by saying there's no such thing as unconscious bias, I don't buy it. Because after all, every single unconscious buying training this firm has ever done, nothing's ever improved. How ironic is that, huh? A shock and confusion reverberated through KPMG's workforce. Mr. Michael issued an apology saying, I'm sorry for the words that I used. They did not reflect what I believed in. I have apologized to my colleagues. Looking after the well-being of our people and creating a culture where everyone can thrive is of critical importance to me and at the heart of everything this firm does. However, a few days later, he announced his resignation, with the senior elected board member, Bina Mehta, replacing him as chair. Michael's empathy gap sparked a significant amount of commentary across the world and across the press, with Gemma McCall, head of a bullying prevention software firm called CultureShift, told The Guardian, Leaders really do need to take heed and exceed expectation when it comes to creating a safe and supportive environment for all employees. News of Mr. Michael's blunt and bracing staff call coincided with the Financial Times publication of readers' feedback highlighting a wave of pandemic burnout that has hit the paper's audience of white-collar professionals. Based on anecdotal responses from 250 readers from around the world, the FT's piece laid bare the strain of the past year as employees trying to struggle with their work-life balance and often with their leaders' responses not particularly well aligned. A reader named Julie explained that she'd suffered palpitations in the first 2020 lockdown, compounded further by worries of her husband being stuck at work overseas. In addition, she wrote, resources provided by her employer failed to address her workload, saying, I received no support or help for the projects I was expected to deliver. I had strict deadlines and no extra time to deliver them. When Julia herself eventually caught COVID-19, she had to work through her illness. And that situation led her to endure a protracted two-month recovery. So as leaders, remember, people are our biggest asset and their health and well-being are essential to you if you really want to drive 
great customer experiences, deliver revenue, and grow your business. It's not a nice to have activity. Adjusting expectations, flexing the working day, extended deadlines, and whatever can be done to make people's working lives a bit better and a bit more manageable should be top of any leader's agenda right now. So if we find ourselves getting grumpy for not delivering the performance we expect from our team, it's important to take stock and recognize by stepping into the shoes of those that are working for us to truly understand their concerns and their experiences. Otherwise, we create our own empathy gap. And one thing we can be certain of, it seems like Bill Michael got that wrong, didn't he? That's been the Leadership Hacker News. If you have any stories, news, insights, please get in touch. Dan Berger is our special guest on today's show. He's the president and CEO of NAFCU, which is the National Association of Federally Insured Credit Unions. He's proudly advocating for the $1.5 trillion credit union industry in the US, along with its 122 million consumers. Dan's also an economist, a leadership expert, and an author, but delighted that we have him on the Leadership Hacker podcast. Welcome to the show, Dan. Thank you, Steve. My pleasure. It's been a while since you and I last met. What I'm keen to really kind of understand from your perspective and to get a bit of a summary for our listeners is the, the backstory to how you've arrived at being the, uh, the president and CEO of NAFCU. How did it all start for you and where did it all come from? Where it all started was uh, growing up in Gainesville, Florida, and just always was a political junkie, worked on political campaigns. And in the U.S., uh, politics is genuinely a who, a who you know uh, type of industry. And it just kind of builds upon itself. And you get, a, you get people elected to different positions, whether it's on the local basis or state basis or the federal level, uh, you start developing a pretty serious network. And the more people you know from a networking standpoint where you can educate uh, elected officials or public officials, uh, your, your value grows uh, as an advocate. And it just, I was a lobbyist. I was hired as a lobbyist up here in Washington, D.C., and then uh, I was hired as the head lobbyist of NAFQ, and then the board appointed me CEO seven years ago, and that's how I got this seat. Awesome. And I guess what you do now requires an enormous amount of politics, but in a much more of a different sense. How, how do you see the parallels from the, the traditional political sense that you've been in before to what you do now? What I do now, it's, it's an expanded role. It's, it's like three-dimensional chess. It's that perfect convergence of policy and politics and business. Yes, there's the lobbying component, you know, lobbying the White House and the Congress and, and the relevant uh, regulatory agencies. Um, but there's also the business aspects of running a trade association. I mean, we're a $30 million business. And so just because we're a uh, nonprofit, we still have to have revenue and income to keep the lights on so we can continue to advocate and, and educate, uh, you know, the public officials and the elected officials. So it's just a perfect convergence. Uh, it's just no, no dull moment. Everything's exciting, especially now. I'm sure everybody has seen it around the world. Indeed, uh, what yeah. We've gone through in the United States in the last several weeks. Uh, one of the stranger environments I've uh, ever been in in my 30 years as a lobbyist. Um, but no, it's been a very interesting uh, couple of months. And how has that shaped the landscape for the conversations you've been having with your members over the last, say, three to six months with what's been happening politically as well as economically around the world? Yeah, from an advocacy standpoint, 
nothing's changed. Uh, we are a nonpartisan uh, organization. We have Republicans and Democrats and Libertarians and Socialists and everybody. We lobby everybody. Um, uh, we're apolitical in, in that standpoint. So no matter who is in control of government or, or Congress or the Oval Office, um, we always have the ability to lobby. We, we're educators, and um, we educate them on the effects of you know regulation or laws that they pass. So it really doesn't matter uh, who gets elected or who gets appointed. And, and so we're always prepared uh, from that standpoint. From an economic standpoint, things will change, uh, whether it's uh, tax policy, uh, you know, more, more regulatory uh, burden uh, for our members sometimes uh, tends to occur under a Democratic-controlled uh, Congress. So it'll be interesting to uh, see how that shakes out. But we're prepared uh, no matter what color stripes are, are being elected. I know from the last time that you and I spoke, you were really passionate about the whole disrupting the credit union space. Where did you start with that? And what's been the main thing that you've seen that's been the biggest disruption that you've brought about as a force of good? Uh, for, for a force of good, uh, we really want to focus on uh, making, uh, having the legislative and regulatory uh, landscape, the, the environment uh, being capable for the credit union industry to grow. Because in turn, the credit unions that I represent uh, on the national level they serve, in turn, 122 million American consumers. And so that's a lot of responsibility. So you want to create an environment for these financial institutions to be able to serve, whether it's uh, better fintech and online banking or you know less regulation so they don't have to spend all those resources, whether it's money, time, people. Uh, and, and on the regulatory side, that they can focus on truly helping their members and helping their communities. If you look at the world of credit unions, non-for-profits versus the corporate America or the corporate world that we live in, what do you see as the things that are consistent that you would see across all the businesses? And maybe what's the one thing from a leadership perspective that is really far out there and different from yours? From a leadership perspective, we, we preach um, improving the culture. And I don't think it's just in, for non-profits or, or trade associations I believe strongly a, a, a strong culture uh, will work in the for-profit uh, realm as well. If you take care of your staff, if you focus on, on their well-being and having the tools and resources necessary to do their jobs well, in turn, they help your members or help their customers or your customers really well. you got to focus on that culture. And when we talk about culture here at, at NAFQ in our organization, we talk about hiring for attitude and aptitude. Uh, we can get you this training. You can have the skill set. But uh, if you're a jerk, that, that does not feed into our culture. We want people with that passion and that enthusiasm uh, to help credit unions because they know we're the best alternative in, in financial services. The best banking services are provided by credit unions. It's not the big banks. It's not the payday lenders or some of the other predatory lenders out there. It is uh, institutions that were created to take care of the American consumer. And so if you focus on culture, you take care of your employees. In turn, they take care of your customer or your member. That whole passion and fire in the belly has been an interesting subject that lots of people have tried studying over the past. But it's one of those things that you can't really train. You can provide the right environment to flourish and grow and develop that passion. But you can't actually train it. So how do you go about 
identifying that in potential recruits that you look for to join the organization? Uh, we have a, a series of various questions, almost case studies or scenarios, and in how they react uh, to those situations or those uh, challenges or problems that have been presented to them uh, really dives down. It's always, it's not the initial question that you ask in a, a potential employee. It's usually the next follow-up question or two that you kind of drill down and get granular with. And you can almost you hear those trigger phrases, uh, you know, that they respond back to you. And you're like, you know what? That might not be a fit for our organization. And we, if you focus on hiring those with that passion and that enthusiasm uh, to be a team player and, and to help row. Internally, we have part of the uh, review process, the employee review process. We have what's called an organi- organizational citizenship uh, review that goes through. How do you play in the sandbox with your colleagues? And that kind of that kind of culture, I mean, it really makes a difference. And you know, we, Steve, you know, people. There's this. You, they could you could give them a billion dollars, right? And they will still be grumpy. There's just nothing you can do about it. It's the DNA. We just know people like that. And they tend to be a cancer on an organization. So we work real hard. We hire slow and we fire fast. And so we, we want the attitude and, and, and that aptitude. And it, it seems to work. We're not perfect, by far from it, from any stretch. I think we're doing a pretty darn good job. Um, but that focus is on our culture is what I think is really strive has really allowed us to to grow and, and be a better organization. And you see that with the way that you've evolved as an organization too, Dan. So you're one of the early uh, adopters, if you like, of that innovating space in the credit union space where you're looking at fintechs and innovation and new ways of working. Is it different that if I'm in an organization where I have shareholders versus members, how do I encourage my membership that that's the right thing to do with their money versus my shareholders? No, I, I think it, I don't think it matters the, the makeup of the organization, because if you focus uh, on staff, uh, your shareholders are taken care of, you know, your customers are taken care of. If you hire a, a group of employees that aren't passionate, that aren't enthusiastic about helping your company grow or helping your customers become better, it, it, it has an effect on the bottom line. It has an effect on the bottom line of a nonprofit. It will definitely have an effect on the bottom line of a for-profit institution or, or company. So to be focused, when you walk into the lobby at NAFQ, we have a big sign on the wall, and it says, our staff is our most valuable asset. And the thing about it is you can't just put a sign in the lobby and just say that because it doesn't mean anything. It's like buzzwords. It's like sticking up those motivational posters around the office. It has to be authentic. It has to be the the leader at the top. It has to be the management team really singing from the same songbook and of having that, you know, hey, we want people with really good attitudes and uh, and smart and they have the aptitude to learn. We want the enthusiasm and passion to make our company uh, or our association stronger and better, but more importantly, help our members become better, help our customers become better. And in turn, everybody benefits. It's that rising tide raises all ships kind of uh, theory. Yeah, definitely so. So from your perspective, Dan, if we took a a leadership lens over this, how do you think the role of the leader is going to change post-pandemic as we come out of 
the way that we've done things in the last 12 months? I think uh, we're early adopters to teleworking uh, here at NAFQ, um, and, and and it's worked out really well. We 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 pilot uh, we piloted and tested it, and and invested heavily in the digital infrastructure here. I like to say it was because we were prescient uh, for the pandemic, but it was actually done for weather-related <laughs> situations. Uh, when I became CEO, we had a five- or six-foot snowstorm, and it shut down all of Washington, D.C. It shut down NAFTA, and I said, like, we can't do this. So we need to invest in the digital infrastructure. We have to invest in the technology and the laptops and cameras and headsets and all that kind of stuff. My board of directors saw that vision. And, and really was very supportive of us making a substantial uh, investment in it. And so when the pandemic hit in, in I guess, March 13th, we shut down, uh, we pivoted and we were digital. We were virtual within 24 hours. And so it worked out extremely well where you saw a lot of companies and a lot of associations here in Washington, D.C. that spent months trying to get up to speed, spent months researching and investing in uh, the new technologies required we were already uh, willing to go and, and roaring to go. Great strategic thinking. Uh, sometimes, you know, luck is, you know, that's a luck is a real thing. But, you know, the harder we work and then the more we strategize and, and try to be prepared, uh, the more luck we seem to have. Exactly. It's the old, the old adage, isn't it? Yes. So one of the things that made me chuckle the last time we met, you have this huge personality and energy that comes with you, Dan, by the way, of which I'm sure our listeners are starting to get into. But the one thing that really made me chuckle is you've been known to turn up to your business meetings riding your Harley Davidson, <laughs> leaving you members aghast as to here's this guy on a Harley in his leathers. What kind of response do you get when that happens? It's all it, it's sometimes a surprise uh, to some uh, folks, but uh, usually they're, they're not too surprised. Uh, but yeah, it started, uh, my wife and I went out to, we have a big motorcycle rally here in the States called Sturgis. And you have, you know, a million bikers show up in this small town in South Dakota. And what we did is we just rode around and visited credit union CEOs uh, in, in a, a few of the states in the area. Uh, it was great. It was well received. It's a, it's a way for me to ride my motorcycle and, and to be genuine. It's who I am. I enjoy riding uh, my Harley and uh reception's been uh, pretty positive awesome so what do you think the reason is that more of us don't do away with that tried and tested corporate image and be more of our authentic self what do you think stops us doing that i, I think it stops some people from doing it. and i think you see people who've had tremendous success being authentic um you know, on your side of the pond richard branson uh i mean tremendous he, he's very authentic he he, you know, walks around in his flip-flops. Of course, it's in his private island in the Caribbean, but sure. uh, but it's you can be authentic. You can be genuine, but, but you still have to be professional. And I, I, I know when uh, to be, you know, the Dan Berger on the Harley, but I'm also know when to, you know, put a sport coat on or the environment. I need to show respect to an elected official or a public official and, and wear a tie. I think it's just common sense. But for me, it's it's who I am. I love to fly fish. I, I love to ride my motorcycle. And so that's authentic. It's just me. It's what I do. And um, on, on occasion, I, I share that image. And, and, and in terms of executives, there's kind of a voyeuristic um, urge for people to learn more about their leaders and the CEOs of companies and associations. And if you get a, a peek of your authentic self, I think it, it helps with engagement and it helps with connection. Because there's others out there like, you know what, I always wanted to ride a motorcycle, or I also ride a motorcycle, 
Or you know what? I too love to go fly fishing. And so there's that personal connection you kind of develop as well. Yeah. I think the pandemic's also helped with that, hasn't it? In, in the fact that we now are all Zoomed in or MS teamed in or whatever medium you use, there's, there's an opportunity here to show a bit more of yourself and, you know, your, your study at home or your kitchen or your lounge. And that in itself creates that intimacy that perhaps has been lacking in the past. Yeah, it's kind of a double-edged sword. And it's like, yeah, you, you can, can create a, you know, a view into people's uh, kitchens or their dining room. Uh, I, I've actually set up a, a studio in my house, in my office, that looks exact, exactly like the one I have here at our headquarters, um, just to eliminate that. So it looks a little more professional. Yeah. And, but we also talk about it, you know, know your audience. You know, there's times that you can, you know, wear a hoodie and, and, and be very casual and stuff. But here, hey, we're a business casual organization and just use your best judgment. And, and so we've had that discussion because there have been instances where someone's wearing a, a, a torn up sweatshirt, you know, and it's just and, then, and it's not a, an appropriate attire from that standpoint. Yeah. You want to wear a sweatshirt, wear one that's, you know, nice, you know, so you, you convey a professionalism just because you're on Zoom and it's a relatively informal presentation or informal video conference call. You still have to do it through a filter of, you know, let's be professional because your image is is the image of the organization. So it kind of does matter. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's it's all part of the new Zoom Microsoft Teams environment. It is for sure. So what's next on the agenda for you and for NAFCU? Well, for us, we, we have a, a new president, as you know. We have a new Congress that is Democrats are in control of both chambers of Congress. And so all the appointments of all the regulatory agencies uh, that we uh, are concerned about and that we work with very closely, they're all getting new staffs and stuff like that. Yeah. So for us, so we're, we've been already talking for months now uh, with the transition team of President Biden's administration, and that'll continue to go. We've got new members of Congress we're talking to. We've already ha- had meetings with the White House, you know, meetings with folks on Treasury, the Federal Reserve, uh, the MCOA, our prudential regulator. And so all those meetings continue to happen. It doesn't happen in the environment that I like because it's done on video conference calls. Uh, I'd much rather have a meeting in person because um, you just get that feedback and then just I, I quite frankly enjoy interactions with my fellow human beings and uh, to do it you just can't really do it uh, appropriately I don't think uh, and develop really close relationships uh, online or, or on video conference calls it's a good way to uh, maintain a, a relationship I guess but I, I think you can't you can't be uh, in-person contact so you're gonna have a busy summer on the Harley then I sense yeah, typically I, I travel uh, about 100,000 miles a year. And, of course, last year was probably one-tenth of that. And, uh, you know, planes, trains, automobiles, an occasional donkey, and, of course, my Harley. Uh, yeah, we, I, I, got, I like to get out and, and see the CEOs of our credit unions and see the members because you get the feedback. And, quite frankly, the, they spend a lot of money to be members of our association, and they deserve that high touch. We got all the high tech. And that we talked about earlier, but that high touch to, to, to be out there, to be seen, uh, to find out what's keeping them up at night and how we can be of help. That's just done in a much better environment when we see them in yeah. person. So this part of the show is where I get to turn the, 
the lens on you and hack into your great leadership mind. So where I'd like to go first, Dan, is to just explore if you could distill all your years of experience into your top three hacks. What would they be? Take care of your staff. Invest in the technology uh, so your staff can be more effective uh, and efficient. And then um, probably lastly, uh, take time off. It's That's probably the biggest thing I've learned uh, throughout my career that almost all the successful leaders uh, that I talk to, that I read about, that I, I that I learn from, they all take time off. And then for me, that's fly fishing. For me, that's riding on my Harley. Um, it's me spending time with my wife and daughter. But that, that last component, I work long hours, as you do, and a lot of the leaders and CEOs uh, that are listening to this, but you have to take that time off. You have to um, re-energize. And I feel great when I come back after a weekend of riding my motorcycle or, or fishing. Uh, I, I'm rejuvenated. I'm, I'm raring to go. And uh, that's those are probably the top three that I would uh, mention. Yeah, great. It's interesting, the last one you mentioned, Dan. So we run a, a, a program where we get people to think of themselves as corporate athletes. And if you think of the, the, the premise of an athlete, track and field or whatever discipline you have, they always, 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 after the event, will take time out and recover. Yet it seems that it's only recently that our global corporate life and this whole philosophy of recovery seems to play in. And it's not a reward. This is an absolute essential activity to be a successful leader in the future, right? Yeah, and, and I would add a fourth to that, Steve. I, I would say exercise. I think you have to not only put your mental state and, and have some self-care involved in, in relaxing and, and taking some time off and getting some downtime and, you know, ter- you know putting in your, your smartphone in the drawer and, and just de- uh, disconnecting for a while. But you have to exercise as well on a regular basis. I lift weights and my wife and I walk two or three times a week. But that kind of stuff's extremely important as well. I think it's a full, uh, it's the full experience of being a leader you have to continue to want to learn. I mean, I'm reading new books all the time, uh, as you do, I know, and, and new articles. I'm always constantly trying to be a sponge and learn new things and reinforce things I may have forgot or, or reinforce things I knew but haven't thought of in, in quite some time. But, uh, yeah, I, I think uh, comparing it uh, to athletes is, is spot on. Awesome. The next part of the show we've affectionately become familiar with is called Hack to Attack. So this is where typically something hasn't worked out well. It could be personal or work. But as a result of the experience going south, you've just, you've taken a learn from that, and it's now positive in your life and your work. So what would be your hack to attack? How I communicate. And I had a, a, an executive coach earlier in my tenure uh, named John Spence. Uh, he's an author and he's a business coach. Uh, Know John very well. He's been on our show too. Oh, terrific! Well, John's from my hometown of Gainesville, Florida, and uh, but he was my executive coach, and he still helps us and, and helps me. But he really helped me with my communication. And I, I'm an extrovert, and I'm, I'm high energy, and I'm go go go. And sometimes I have a tendency, unintentionally, not to come across. I'll be direct. I got so much stuff on my to-do list. I'm going to check off each day and everything. I have a tendency sometimes to come across blunt or direct, and I don't mean for it to be, but you have to put yourself in the other person's chair. You're receiving it. Oh, so I got this one-line sentence. Hey, where are we on 
on the XYZ project. And it's like, not a hello, not a good morning. You know, yeah. it was just, hey, I got a lot of stuff to do. Just give me the answer so I can get on with my day. And I, I learned early on that that EQ in, in your communication matters. And I've got EQ uh, throughout everything else and aspects of my leadership and management style. But my email communication, I, I had to really transform and spend a little time. You know, you do it. We walk around. I manage by walking around. There's reason this whole environment is really kind of messed up for me. But we celebrate little victories and large victories and high fives and fist bumps. But you can't really do that electronically. And so how people receive your communication, especially electronically, matters. And it, that was uh, that really helped me a lot because I, I still have to work at it. I still have to take a deep breath before I hit send <laughs> to make sure that it's okay. Not because of the content of it, uh, per se, with the issue or topic I'm trying to uh, get answered, but just the approach to it. And that, that's been, um, I work on it every day, Steve, every single day. The fact it's conscious for you is really quite healthy because we're all innately built in a certain way and we've created habits and behaviours that are innate. And yet sometimes we need to make sure that we get rid of some of those things that don't serve us well, but we, we play on the things that do. And, and as long as we're conscious about that, we'll be successful. No, I, I agree completely. Dan, you let us into the secret. Where, where was the moment that you thought, I need to fix this? Has there been a belter of an email you've sent somebody that you thought, uh-oh, no, it was, a, it was a, an employee survey. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the best way to get any feedback, of course, because it comes in volumes then as well. Oh, it, it really does. And, and, it, it's, uh, and you got to have it. And, and, and they're right. And, it just, and it's not intentional. And it's not me being gruff or I'm being grumpy. And we all have those kind of days. And, and I understand that. It's just at the time, it's just so much on my plate. I'm trying to check all this stuff off. I want some, you know, information on certain things we're working on to give it so I can give it to our board of directors, let's say. And then it's just, you know, you, you can spend, you know, another minute or two and, and draft an, an email. Say, hey, good morning, Cassie. I appreciate your work on this. Can you give me an update on where we are? Are we still on target to hit the 5 p.m. Friday deadline? Let me know. Thanks. And it's just, it's the same email and it just, it took you, you know, 60 seconds longer to type it and, and it makes them feel appreciated. And, and, and they, and in turn, it just, it just all part of the entire culture we're trying to create here and, and, and fast growing. We're a fast growing company. Our bus runs fast. We talk about it. We want to make sure the right person is in the, on the bus. The right person is in the right seat on the bus. And, but there's a, you have to take a deep breath and say, hey, how am I communicating with people? Put yourself in that chair. Okay, you're a 24-year-old young lady, young man, and the CEO of the organization just fired off a one-sentence question to you. Yeah. How would you like that or not like that? And how, I mean, and it just gets, the, it just, it scares some people, um, you know, and it's just, we all have insecurities. And so why magnify that for some uh, poor colleague of yours? That, that makes no sense. And so I have to work on that. Yeah. So the last thing we're going to do with you today, Dan, is give you a chance to do some time travel and bump into Dan at 21 and you get to give him some advice. So what would your advice to Dan be? Um, I, I think to try to become 1% better every day. 
I think when we're young, we have a tendency uh, to have these really huge goals and want to hit grand slams and everything. But if you just get incrementally better every day, say 1% every day, those small improvements over a period of time um, are more satisfying. Uh, they have longevity. And I, I think that's the, the part. And it took me probably into my 30s to genuinely understand that. And uh, just the, and uh, I try to do that now, whether it's, you know, reading. i got a news aggregator I, I read every morning on my treadmill. And so you sit there and you read the news. I'm trying to got, gather all the information so I can be a better executive. I read leadership and, and management books on a regular basis so I can become a, a, a better supervisor or a better leader. Just at 1%, just every day, what did I do today? Become 1% better in any aspect of my, as, as a husband, as a father of a 16-year-old daughter. What, I'm, I'm trying very hard to become 1% better all the time. That's what I would have told my 21-year-old self. Yeah, that's great advice. It's the laws of marginal gains, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, it really is. And, and it's really helped me focus it because everybody, especially in this environment now, Steve, as you know, it's just the instant gratification and, 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 and the pats on the back and the awards and everything else you get when you hit those grand slams and stuff. But I have found the, the, that 1% theory gives you bigger rewards and more success than really focusing on those big, big uh, projects and, 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 and big challenges and awards and stuff. It just it seems to multiply itself uh, even faster and, and further and has more longevity. Yeah, agree. So, Dan, if folk wanted to find out a little bit more about the work that you do with NAFCU or indeed find out a little bit more of how they can connect with you and learn from your leadership lessons, where's the best place for us to send them when we're done? Oh, uh, NAFCU.org. And, of course, uh, I'm on LinkedIn at uh, B. Dan Berger. And I'd uh, love to hook up with uh, anybody that's listening. Awesome. Well, we'll make sure that we put links to NAFCU in our show notes as well as your LinkedIn profile so folk can head straight over. Thank you, Steve. Dan, listen, it's been absolutely brilliant chatting. You are a passionate guy and I've loved the times that we've spoken together. And, uh, you know, if you can continue to just grow 1% between now and the next 100 days, what a wonderful place this world will be. So thank you for being on the Leadership Hacker podcast. Thank you, Steve. You're a gentleman and a scholar. Have a great 2021. I genuinely want to say a heartfelt thanks for taking time out of your day to listen in too. We do this in the service of helping others and spreading the word of leadership. Without you listening in, there would be no show. So please subscribe now if you haven't done so already. Share this podcast with your communities and network and help us develop a community and a tribe of leadership hackers. And finally, if you'd like me to work with your senior team, your leadership community, keynote an event, or you would like to sponsor an episode, please connect with us via our social media. And you can do that by following and liking our pages on Twitter and Facebook. Our handle there is at Leadership Hacker. Instagram, you can find us there at the underscore leadership underscore hacker. And at YouTube, we're just Leadership Hacker. So that's me signing off. I'm Steve Rush, and I've been the Leadership Hacker.